0: Hello, All About Agatha listeners. I am not doing my usual intro because that intro is yet to come. Today, I am bringing you a summer rerun. I am currently on vacation or on holiday, as those of you across the pond would say. So, I decided to replay a previous episode from the rather bulky back catalog All About Agatha has built up over the years. This episode you're about to listen to is all about the Agatha Christie short story, Accident. This episode dropped all the way back on September 7th, 2018. The podcast was not quite two years old at that point. My dear friend, Catherine Brobeck, is, of course, co-hosting this episode. So I love that this is another opportunity to hear her voice, And keep her fresh in our memories. I know she was always fresh in mine and her mother Linda's and many others. But there is another reason that I chose to rerun this episode. In September, I will be hosting another live episode at the International Agatha Christie Festival. Many of you have bought tickets. There are not many tickets left, actually. So if you haven't yet bought a ticket and you are listening to me right now, I urge you to go to the festival website. I will provide a link in the show notes to this episode and to purchase a ticket to my event and I hope as many other events as you can attend because they are all fabulous. It's such a lovely festival for any Christie lover who can make the trip to Southwest England to Torquay. Anyway, the subject of my panel, which is happening Thursday, the 14th of September at 7 p.m. in the Spanish barn, is figuring out Agatha Christie's greatest short story. And I will not be doing this alone. I will be doing this with such luminaries in the field of Christie scholarship as Dr. John Curran, Dr. Jamie Berntal-Hooker, Dr. Mark Aldridge... And Christie Fan extraordinaire and author of the Smart Women Crime Mysteries, a beloved mystery author to many of you, Victoria Dowd. So we will be debating as to which among Christie's 100 plus short stories is the best short story. We are not going to be discussing every short story by Agatha Christie. We are, in fact, discussing nine short stories. And I am going to tell you what those nine short stories are right now. These are all stories that the five of us, me and the four panelists who so kindly agreed to appear on my panel, nominated as the best Agatha Christie short stories out there. And it's a really interesting collection of stories. We've got some Poirot, some Marple, one Quinn Satterthwaite, and two standalone short stories. Now, this is the only episode on which I am going to run through the list of short stories we will be discussing in September. So, if you are listening to this rerun episode, a plus 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 listener that you are, you are now going to be rewarded with a sneak peek. Here, in no particular order, are the nine short stories. Murder in the Muse, The Idle House of Astarte, Triangle at Rhodes, The Witness for the Prosecution, a.k.a. Traitor's Hands, The Man from the Sea, Death by Drowning, The Adventure of the Christmas Pudding, The Affair at the Bungalow, and finally, as you probably guessed by now, Accident. So there you have it. Those are the short stories we will be discussing and ranking in September at the International Agatha Christie Festival on Thursday, September 14th at 7 p.m. in the Spanish Barn. Yes, I do intend to record this live event, but didn't go so well last year. I hope to do better this year, but if you want to be absolutely certain, if you want to guarantee that you will be able to hear this debate as to Agatha Christie's greatest short story, then buy yourself a ticket and come and see me and so many of my good friends in Torquay in September. I really hope to see you there. It's going to be so much fun. And now I will invite you to sit back and listen to Catherine and me talk about how much we absolutely loved accident when we first covered it for this podcast. You can consider it preparation for the festival or just a nice revisitation of one of our very favorite episodes. Catherine was always very fond of this episode. We talked about it a number of times and I am as well. It's also a short one. This was back in the day when it was possible for an All About Agatha episode to be under 30 minutes. Imagine that. What a world. All right. I will be back with a new episode in two weeks time. There is no reading required because it is going to be all about the dedications in Agatha Christie's novels. I had such a fun time doing a holistic sort of review of the Christie oeuvre when I ranked the murderers that I can't resist doing something similar as to the dedications. I will not be ranking them. I'm not that far gone, but I will be discussing all of them and the light they shed on Agatha Christie's career and Agatha Christie as a person moving through the world in the 20th century. There's a lot of really fascinating information to be mined from those dedications. Our coverage of those dedications was fairly scattershot over the course of our otherwise systematic review of Christie's 66 mystery novels. I'll also be covering some dedications to short story collections. It's going to be dedication madness. I can't wait. Very much looking forward to that. Hope you're all having a great summer and I'll see you soon.
1: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of prime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck.
0: And I'm Kemper Donovan.
1: This week, we are tackling another short story from a collection that we're very fond of.
0: Very near and dear to Catherine's heart. I
1: like them. I think they're unusual. That would be the Listerdale Mystery Collection. Uh, And so we are tackling in this episode... Accident, which I would say has a really kind of singular title for Christy. We don't get a lot of these one word titles, do we? Sing-
0: singular in two senses. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, agreed. When I came across it as the next story that we were going to cover, I was struck by the title because her titles are usually more descriptive than that and less artful. It has a lot of impact, doesn't it? It's intriguing. And I think that that is indicative of the story itself because spoiler, we were both big fans of this one.
1: It's really good. It's worth the 20 minutes that will take you to read. If that.
0: Maybe 10. 10. Yeah. <laughs> this is a short little story, but it is, it is worth short. every minute that it would take you to read it. So Accident was first published in September, 1929 in the Sunday Dispatch, which I don't believe we've ever come across as one of the periodicals in which Christie published short stories. It was, of course, published under a different title, because it's always published under a different title. That was (laughs) The Uncrossed Path. Not as good of a title. And then it was published as part of the Listerdale Mystery Collection in 1934. And like a lot of these Listerdale Mystery short stories, it was published much later in the U.S., although not in The Golden Ball and other stories, which is where a lot of those Listerdale Mystery short stories seem to have ended up, but in The Witness for the Prosecution and Other Stories, which was published in the U.S. in 1948. That also happens to be the home of Sing a Song of Sixpence and Philomel Cottage, which we have already covered from the Listerdale Mystery Collection. All right, let's talk about our victim, Catherine Brobeck.
1: Well, our victim is one Mr. Anthony, who was an arsenic eater, which... You know, it was interesting. And he died from an OD from, would you care to guess, what drug?
0: Uh, could it be arsenic? <laughs>
1: <laughs> that seems possible. Um, A few years previously, there was an investigation about it because there was perhaps some concerns that because he was such an adept, quote-unquote, arsenic eater— Maybe he'd actually been murdered by Mrs. Anthony, his
0: wife. Right. And I actually only know about arsenic eaters from A is for Arsenic by Catherine Harkup, that wonderful reference book for Christie readers, which we've referenced before on the podcast. And people did, in fact, take arsenic medicinally in a homeopathic way because it was supposed to make your skin look good and just give you a healthful appearance.
1: Women used it in particular, right? right. I mean, that's what it's most notorious for, is because mm-hmm. it would whiten your skin.
0: Right. And it's like, hey, you know, you're poisoning yourself, but you sure look pretty. <laughs> but I guess this is a rare male arsenic eater. He just liked the way it made him feel. Let
1: me let me just point out, and I don't say this at all facetiously, but uh, the number of places you can go and have botulism injected into your face is pretty high.
0: Yeah. These practices continue to this day. Yeah. So we only have one suspect here because this is not a puzzle mystery. This is a sort of outlier within the Christie of, because it's also really not an adventure story or a quote unquote thriller, but Our suspect is Mrs. Anthony, the one that people think maybe actually murdered our arsenic eater, Mr. Anthony, and she is now known as Mrs. Merodine, and she is an attractive-ish woman and a possible murderess, but she is the only suspect and she is very much a suspect. And that is in fact, the entire focus of this story is did Mrs. Anthony murder someone? Well,
1: I guess there's another question, right? It's is Mrs. Meridine actually Mrs. Anthony?
0: Right. And if she is Mrs. Anthony, is she about to murder again?
1: Is, is she like on a hot streak?
0: All right. Let's talk about the world as it appears to be.
1: This is a relatively short story, and the only clue, which I think is probably now obvious up front, is tonal. It's a tonal clue. I think it's very well written, especially for an early story. In our novel podcast, we talk a lot about tone and atmosphere when we're talking about rankings, and this deserves immediately very high marks. That said, if you see what the tone is, you probably can guess where the story is going and i think that in a bit we can talk about some other short stories that actually have i think a lot of similarities to this but suffice it to say this is very short and it's brutal especially for pretty early Christie. i mean not that early of christy but it's pretty brutal
0: short nasty and brutish yes (laughs) (laughs) it is which we love
1: yeah, I love some nice pavo Poirot. Do not get me wrong, ever on that front, but this is dark.
0: We get it occasionally with Christie, and it's more often than not the more celebrated works of Christie. Because I would argue that another short, nasty, and brutish short story is Traitor Hands, which is the basis for Witness for the Prosecution. Mm, yes. And in novel form, and then there were none.
1: Yeah, right.
0: <laughs> so what's unusual about the story is how little known it is. Yeah,
1: I, I don't think that before we were preparing for this, I don't recall having ever read this story. Did you?
0: No, no, me neither. And 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 actually, I think we should we could also make a comparison to Film El Cottage, which we just mentioned also in this collection, because it too is an unusual, short, nasty, and brutish Christie story. But that actually was adapted a lot in Christie's earlier career. Right. It's a little bit fallen out of favor recently, but it seems to have had its day. And there was a West End production of it that I think is actually still going on. We certainly see it in our Google alerts all the time. So this one just really seems to be a bit more under the radar than it deserves.
1: Yeah, so everybody go read it. And saying that, what is the setup here, Kemper?
0: So the setup is that former Inspector Evans is chatting with his neighbor, Captain Hadock. And Inspector Evans is insistent that Mrs. Merrideen, one of their other neighbors, is actually the former Mrs. Anthony, a suspected murderess. And there was a trial, but she was acquitted because her husband had a history of arsenic eating. So it appeared as though one day he had just overdone it and no one has said anything to mrs meredine about whether or not she may be Mrs. Anthony, but Inspector Evans is sure.
1: And also, how do you go about saying to your neighbor? So
0: So are you a murderer?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the thing is, and this is sort of what Catherine's talking about with the tonal clue. We know right away, like within a page, that yes, she is. She is the former Mrs. Anthony, and she is a murderer, and she's going to somehow murder again because that's just the type of story that we're in.
1: Yeah, we know we can you can look at the length of it, you can see what the premise is in the first First sentence or two and there is a sense of impending doom here
0: right Exactly. We know what's going to happen. We just don't know exactly how it's going to happen.
1: Captain Hadock, unfortunately, well, I guess, or maybe fortunately for him, is not having any of this. Uh, He finds it just, like, frightful that this woman, who is, like, a perfectly good neighbor, she's lived there for a long time, and now all of a sudden his friend is, like, putting these accusations up that even if she was Mrs. Anthony... She was acquitted. Why should she have to suffer through something when she already had to suffer
0: through it once? She had her day in court. She had due process. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's very suspicious of what Evans is doing, and he kind of clocks it, and he asks if Evans has something that he needs to tell him. Was something not said in the trial that he knows because he was in CID?
0: And there is something that he knows. He has some special information here, which is that in her teens, the woman in question, Mrs. Anthony, had been on a cliff sidewalk— a good idea to walk on a cliff with someone um, you don't fully trust in a Christie story. She was walking on the cliff with her stepfather, who disapproved of her love interest, and said stepfather had a wee bit of an accident, tumbled down the cliff to his death, just like that poor man who subsequently asked, Why didn't they ask Evans?
1: <laughs> That's exactly what well and I I will note we are dealing with Inspector Evans.
0: And we are dealing with Inspector Evans. And also since we're talking about the names in this story, I believe that Haydock shares the surname with Dr. Haydock who hails from St. Mary Mead and features in some Miss Marple stories. So maybe there's a connection there. Maybe Captain Haydock and Dr. Haydock are brothers or Cousins. Something. I mean,
1: exciting connections abound.
0: You know what this story needs to not have the ghoulish ending that it has? Miss Marple. <laughs> she would have nipped this in the bud.
1: That, or I'm going to make a suggestion <laughs> up front, it's that this is possibly a story that Miss Marple would later use as an illustration for something else.
0: <laughs> totally. So Haydock still thinks that this is all best left to history and that Evans should not say anything, that he should mind his own beeswax. Mm-hmm. That is probably in many ways the lesson be learned in this short story if there is one to be learned that uh people should mind their own business but guess who doesn't mind his own business evans (laughs) yep
1: you know why didn't they ask evans
0: why did evans ask
1: why did evans (laughs) ask
0: that's the alternate title alternate alternate title (laughs)
1: <laughs> Before this point, um, he and Haydock have actually been visiting with Mr. Merodine, who is a former chemistry professor. They've been friendly, but they've been looking at his lab. And because Evans has already been suspicious of the missus, he's now extra concerned. So he basically stalks Mrs. Merodine at the local fair, which does not seem like a good idea. Then on top of that, he goes and sees a fortune teller, which I will tell you a fortune, Kemper. Please do. The fortune is, if you are in, especially Christy's story, but in many a crime story, if you go to see a fortune teller, things probably are not going to bode well for you.
0: This is true. There are very few stories in which a character has his or her fortune read and a happy result from that experience.
1: A fortune teller in a short story in particular is a Chekhov's gun. And <laughs> and her name is also Zara the fortune teller, which is just perfect.
0: You know, it's a really a major exception to that fortune teller rule. It, it's in a novel, not a short story. What? Jane Eyre. I know it's not your favorite, Catherine, It's not but my favorite. <laughs> the exception is when the fortune teller turns out to be Mr. Rochester in drag. <laughs> Spoiler listeners, Zara is not Mr. Rochester in drag.
1: Although <laughs> we don't That's know intriguing. that actually.
0: We actually don't know that, it's true. <laughs>
1: we don't find out anything more, so it's a distinct possibility.
0: Well, so he finds out from the fortune teller that death is in his future and of course he thinks this has to do with Mrs. Meridine killing her current husband. Right. And then he also finds out that Mr. Meridine has just taken out a life insurance policy at right. his wife's behest.
1: Mm-hmm. And then also her last husband, Mr. Anthony, had also just taken out a life insurance policy that gave everything to her, you know, like two or three weeks before he overdid it on the arsenic eating.
0: So... Evans here decides to take matters into his own hands, that this is enough is enough. And he, at the fair, right? Correct. He calls Mrs. Meridine, Mrs. Anthony on purpose and watches as the realization hits her. And then Mrs. Meridine slash Anthony invites him over for tea.
1: Mm, Because that seems like a good idea.
0: And he goes because the fly walks right on into the spider's web every time.
1: Well, and also, you know, I mean, he is a retired investigator. Police
0: inspector. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he should actually have a good head on his shoulders or a better head on his shoulders for these sorts of scenarios than your average person. Well, and
1: I will also say that we are very much, and I think unusually in a lot of ways for Christie's story, we're very much in his head during all of this. And what he really thinks is nobody else is preventing a crime.
0: Right. He thinks that this is all, it all rests on his shoulders. I mean, he is, he is the prototypical nosy Parker, right? Or busybody. He thinks that he has to do it and the world was not going to be set right if not for him. So he's just got to get on up in in everyone's business. Well, and I mean,
1: it also goes in an interesting way to what we've, talk about a lot is the idea of extra legal justice, right? Like he thinks that she escaped these two other crimes that she committed. Mm-hmm. And now she's going to commit a third one and nobody's going to do anything about it. And this poor guy who he's kind of fond of, who's like a dweeb, mm-hmm. this guy has no idea that he's going to be murdered. And it's right. true. There's a guy in the story who has no idea if he's going to be murdered.
0: This is true. Let's get there. So what happens at tea, Catherine?
1: You know, she explains to him that they drink tea in the Chinese style. So in sipping bowls and not teacups. And she prepares a brew of fancy stuff that she has. But she's been complaining to her husband this whole time that the bowls, they keep popping up in his experiments and his lab and the maid keeps putting them back into the kitchen and she's getting really over it and she kind of jokes that one day he's gonna poison all of them by accident because he's been doing chemical experiments with their drinking glasses.
0: Mr. Meridine storms off to his lab to check that the maid has not messed with anything else. And that is when Evans confronts the woman across the table, Mrs. Meridine, and he challenges her to drink the tea that she just made for her husband. And this is where, even though we have no clues and this isn't a puzzle mystery, I think we should switch to the world as it actually is, because if we were still in the world as it appears to be, what would happen here is that Evans would have foiled the plan, right? That she was intending to poison her husband and he called her out the end but that's not quite what happens is it Catherine?
1: he says mrs meridine i'm a man of queer whims will you be very kind and indulge me in one of them she looked inquiring but unsuspicious he rose took the bowl from in front of her and crossed to the little table where he substituted it for the other i.e the other is her husband's this other he brought back and placed in front of her I want to see you drink this.
0: Her reaction is such that we think he's got her. This is her reaction. Her eyes met his. They were steady, unfathomable. The color slowly drained from her face. She stretched out her hand, raised the cup. He held his breath, supposing all along he had made a mistake. She raised it to her lips. At the last moment, with a shudder, she leant forward and quickly poured it into a pot containing a fern. Then she sat back and gazed at him defiantly. So seems, yeah, she was about to poison her husband and she couldn't go through with it. And he then very patronizingly essentially says, you know, you thought you were smart, but you weren't smart enough for me. And I think you understand me. There must be no repetition. You know what I mean? And she says, I know what you mean. And what happens next? Because we are almost done, but not quite.
1: Evans makes... The air of slightly arrogant people everywhere. You don't ever underestimate who you are talking to. He raises his glass of tea to his lips. His bowl. His bowl. (laughs) And the line is, To your long life and to that of your husband, he said significantly and raised his tea to his lips. Then his face changed. It contorted horribly. He tried to rise to cry out. His body stiffened. His face went purple. He fell back, sprawling over his chair. His limbs convulsed. Mrs. Meriden leaned forward, watching him. A little smile crossed her lips. She spoke to him very softly and gently. You made a mistake, Mr. Evans. You thought I wanted to kill George. How stupid of you. How very stupid. Because guess what? She actually loves her current husband. <laughs> Surprise!
0: That's the twist. The twist is that she's happily married. She finally figured it out. Yeah. She's she... winning. She's winning at love and life. Yeah. So she married the right man.
1: <laughs> I love the line also. Her smile broadened. She looked more than ever like a Madonna. Then she raised her voice and called, George, George, oh, do come here. I'm afraid there's been the most dreadful accident. Poor Mr. Evans.
0: And that is the end of the story. It's it's
1: delightfully mean.
0: Yeah, nasty, brutish, and short. Because it it ends exactly as we knew it was going to end, with this woman murdering someone. It's
1: clear from the very beginning of the story. It's just one of those stories where you're like, how is this going to happen?
0: She ends up murdering the one who just wouldn't leave well enough alone. Right.
1: And I mean, you know, he was clearly right. Clearly she murdered the other two people.
0: Sure. No, I mean, and Christy really makes that clear. I mean, the only part we didn't read from that last page is she sat there a minute longer looking at the dead man, the third man who had threatened to cross her path and separate her from the man she loved.
1: Yeah, she loves this nerdy little, like, retired chemistry professor. He
0: signed his own death warrant by virtue of his pushiness and curiosity and sense of superiority. Sense
1: of superiority and need for, you know, this extra legal justice, which. It's you know. funny because, you know, he very could easily could be like a Poirot or a Miss Marple. They would do something similar to what he did. Mm-hmm. It's just that he isn't good enough at it to not right. have seen what was coming.
0: Miss Marple would have seen it.
1: Yeah. Well, he thought he was smarter than her and he wasn't. And he wasn't. The thing that works about this is how effectively it's written. And that's why I wanted to start talking about it with the tone. And the only two things that I would note is that it actually functions in a short story way differently than I think a lot of her stories do. And I know Kemper, I mentioned this to you before, but the thing that it reminded me a lot of was um, A Good Man is Hard to Find.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Flannery O'Connor, right?
1: Flannery O'Connor and maybe the classic of all classic 20th century short stories. I think that's fair. Which, you know, starts with somebody reading about a serial killer in the paper and thinking about how they're going to avoid the serial killer.
0: So you know, oh, (laughs) they're going to be killed by a serial killer.
1: Right, right. And I mean, the other one that I mentioned to you was um, Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been, which is Joyce Carol Oates. And it's another one of those, if you are in ninth grade in the United States and you have to be handed a book of American short stories, those two short stories are showing up in them. And then they show up again if you talk about, I think, crime fiction, because both of them are essentially about crimes, about dread. They're about dread.
0: What's really funny is that this short story features a detective, mm-hmm. but it is it is not detective fiction. This is crime fiction.
1: Yeah, it is.
0: Right? It's interesting. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and, and about the fiction of dread, about knowing about something... And not having any ability to do anything about it, even if you think you do. And the reader yeah. and the reader knows that, you know, we just got off of And Then There Were None. This predates that by 10 years, but it functions in a very similar way.
0: You can see the writer of And Then There Were None in this mm-hmm. story and in some of those other short stories we referenced that are similar to this one. Philomel Cottage. Traitor Hands, that is the same sort of writer who went on to do and then there were none. That inevitability, the doom and, and the inexorability of fate, this is going to happen and it's preordained and there's just nothing you can do about it. I mean, that obviously is a literary trope from uh, Oedipus Rex right on down, it's effective, you know, it's powerful. And she she's using it to its full effect in these stories.
1: Yeah, I just think it's um, remarkably talented writing in a very specific way that you don't necessarily see that often in the short stories. Or
0: in the novels. Yeah, really. no,
1: I know. And I don't know that she gets enough credit for how effective something like this is.
0: Yeah, and it's not. I mean, even though we're we're certainly making the point that it's not what she usually wrote. It's not like this was a one off. As we're you know, you know, we've now read enough that we know that she's done this a couple of times. She certainly had the ability to do it. And she obviously only chose to do it every now and then. She didn't do the nasty, short, and brutish route very often. And I have to imagine that it just didn't necessarily suit her personality, and she didn't want to do it all the time. But when she wanted to do it, she could certainly do it.
1: It would be hard to do that all the time.
0: Like Shirley Jackson did it all the time. Sure, well, <laughs> like, yeah,
1: that had to have taken a toll. The only other one that I would have mentioned um, is Stephen King. And, you know, there's one that I really love. I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before. It's actually late Stephen King. I think it's like in the last 10 years. But there's a short story called The Road Virus Heads North that if you haven't read it, I would read it with lights on. <laughs> it's about a painting and about a road trip. And it, it functions similarly. And I really love that story, not because it doesn't scare the living daylights out of me, but because it functions just solely as dread. And I think it's what she does in this and what she does in, and then there were none. And it's just remarkable because then she can just switch off to something else and credit where credit is due. hundred percent. And also, I, I do think the comparison to Trader Hands is very accurate because the twist at the end is the same.
0: It has the same bite to it. Uh, yeah, it, it does. Mm-hmm. It has the same thunk at the end. This thing is tightly constructed. Yeah. This short story should be anthologized. Middle schoolers would love this story. I think this would turn on a lot of young readers.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Well,
0: that is Accident. Lovely short story by Agatha Christie within the Listerdale Mystery Collection or The Witness for the Prosecution and Other Stories Collection. So I guess actually quite apt that it's within that collection in the U.S. And next week we will be covering our next novel, Sad Cypress, Hercule Poirot. We are very excited to be back with our dear Papa Poirot.
1: Absolutely.
0: We'd love to hear from you in the meantime via email at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or on Twitter at allaboutthedame. Tweet at Catherine at Bobcat, She would love to hear from you. Our Facebook page is all about Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at all about Agatha. And we love getting the ratings and reviews from you please keep them coming it really helps other people find the podcast and we just love hearing. yeah from you. And,
1: and also thank you so much to everybody who has emailed us or sent us messages on social media especially about and then there were none because you guys have been really lovely and great and we tremendously appreciate it
0: that was a lot of fun doing that episode and you made it more fun with your responses and engagement so thank you for that and we'll see you next time bye
1: bye